You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there and thank you for downloading The Agenda's podcast from today, the 26th of January. Now, as a massive drone conference comes to a close in Abu Dhabi, we got an overview of the trends and innovations in this very fast-growing field. That was with drone consultant Mike Rudolph. Meanwhile, a new study has found not going to school is as bad for your health as smoking and drinking. But there is some good news. The trend can be reversed. We spoke to the report author, sociologist Dr. Mirza Balaj. Sticking on the school theme, with rush hour traffic causing everyone a headache in Dubai nowadays, one school is offering parents a solution – weekly boarding. We heard from Ruth Burke, who's the principal of Swiss International Scientific School in Dubai, and also caught up with Lily Stahl, who's a weekly boarder in grade nine at the school. Meanwhile, we also looked into who invented butter chicken, because a judge is due to rule in a court case brought by two Indian restaurants who are both claiming it's their recipe. We spoke to an IP lawyer to get into the details of that case. And a British wildlife park is looking to solve the problem of several very potty-mouthed parrots. We spoke to Steve Nichols, the chief executive of Lincolnshire Wildlife Park, about what he is going to do with the problem of those swearing birds. Meanwhile, Robbie Greenfield brought us up to date with all the latest sporting news. Dozens of deals have been signed at the Unmanned Systems Exhibition and Conference. It's known as UMEX, um, but it's even easier if you just think of it as the drone show. Um, And it concluded last night in Abu Dhabi. And it's fair to say... Uh, this event, uh, or this year's event, really highlighted how drones are entering the mainstream. You know, we've heard about how they're being used extensively in warfare, um, but also they're used to deliver vital aid in conflict zones or disaster zones. And they're becoming ever more sophisticated, which means that the machines can now take the place of human pilots in dangerous circumstances. So could the days of us taking a drone instead of a taxi or getting our Friday pizza delivery from the skies soon be upon us? Realistically, how soon is that actually going to happen? Joining me now to review the latest trends from the show is aviation and drone consultant Mike Rudolph. He's been based here in the UAE for many years, goes to the conference every single year um, and obviously is, is the man in the know. Mike, lovely to have you join us on the line. How are you? Good morning, Georgia. Thank you for having me. Always good. Tell me, what innovations have started to come to the fore this year? What did you notice when you headed down there this week? Well, there were a number of things, and it was actually I was actually quite perplexed because, first of all, you mentioned this being a drone show. So it was more to do with, with all kinds of vehicles, whether they be marine, whether they be um, um, uh, airborne, whether they be um, uh, you know, ground, ground moving. So it was a display of, of all forms of autonomous vehicles that can take the place of the human. Um, what, was, what, what made me quite perplexed was the fact that um, the trend seems to have shifted, and we can understand that. 
that because of the of the times that we live in and obviously um, affected by by the region as well in that the the the, the, the military applications and and um, what they can do and the payloads that these vehicles can carry out totally outweighed uh, what is available on the commercial market if you can recall um, a, you know a year ago or two years ago there was a lot to do especially you know uh, through COVID coming out of COVID there was a lot to do with what let's call it uh, drones for good in other words what they can do for folk that are displaced in areas that need to have for example medication and or deliveries and how this technology can be used um, to to compensate for that and what we've seen now in the latest show it's shifted very much towards um, taking this technology and what application can be used um, in a military sense, whether it be a deployment of, of weapons and or um, uh, providing for limited relief um, at the front line or beyond the front line. So that was something that was, that was truly um, eye-opening. I mean, realistically, if you're a country looking to deploy your military, then you know, then it's a dream come true to not actually have to send humans into the field, you know, whether that's in the air or whether it's on, on the sea. If you don't have to actually have, have a person present, then you're saving your manpower. That, that is quite correct. And um, it's about, it's about uh, using that initiative as regards your deployment of both humans as well as autonomous vehicles. These are vehicles not only in the air, but also on the ground. So you can use, for example, a ground application, which uh, we would commonly call, let's say, for example, a, a military tank. Uh, you could use that as an autonomous vehicle moving beyond the front line and replace the, you know, the, the, human, the human factor as regards uh, injuries and fatalities. Um, but with a drone, you could, yes, that, that is, and it's been on the cards for some time. Um, you can create a squadron of, of drones that can provide for um, either attack or otherwise protection with reference to uh, frontline uh, deployment. And obviously, it's, it, you know, it's, it's um, the, 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 what this has brought about now is a heightened requirement for, for let's call it anti-drone technology, whether that be in the commercial market and or the military. So um, opposition forces, whether they be good or bad, need to now understand that the, that the, 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 the kind of, of, of application that has been used here, or the 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 the, um, the the war that might be fought is changing, and and now we need to find the technology that can protect the people on the ground, whether they be the military and or citizens. So the the requirement for anti drone anti drone technology has also increased expeditiously. Well, um, and it was evident at this display. Well, it's so interesting you mentioned that because, of course, I think the first time we ever had you on the radio, we, it was on the business breakfast then, and I was the producer. And I think the first time we had you on was to talk about how to stop drones getting in the way. It was just um, civilian drones, toys, ultimately, getting in the way of airport runways. And I remember then you were talking about the new technology that was being invented, this geofencing technology. And clearly... They must now have that technology because we never see the airport being closed at the moment, you know, anymore. It's been years since the airport was closed by a drone. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's interesting to see how that technology is obviously developing. Can I ask you about the marine um, yes. automa automotive, automatic yes. machines? Because I hadn't really heard of that. Do they have sort of, are they automatic subs almost? 
So you so you get submersibles and you get those that go on top. In other words, uh, through on top of the water as well, and that can be deployed whether they be um, to provide for uh, a defence mechanism and or deployment and or a rescue. So that was very very interesting, and uh, that was also pretty new to the market. Although um, the actual technology has been trialled for some time, the actual application, whether it be for rescue and or uh, defence deployment, is something that's new very, very new to the market. So um, if we look at what's happening, for example, in the Suez Canal, don't be surprised in the very near future if you don't find an automate, automated deployment uh, taking place uh, from a marine perspective that is going to protect or try to protect vessels that are entering um, that uh, the Suez Canal. Because you could use these autonomous drones, uh, autonomous marine machines, sorry, I don't really know what to call them, the autonomous marine machines, you know, to deal with piracy, uh, also to deal with smuggling, of course, you know, you could, the border control could use them as well. What, what do they, um, uh, what do they call them? Because they're, they're not, dr- are they, are they drones even when they're in the water? No, so, so the, the drone technology applies mainly to, to air. So it's deployed in the air and, and obviously, um, it's associated to that application. This is just a, an automated marine vessel, um, as well as you get an AGV, which is a ground vessel, automated ground vessel, which is what I mentioned earlier. That is very similar to what we see in the movies or what we've seen on the news uh, broadcast with reference to um, tank deployments. Um, I think at, at this stage, what is very interesting, and and um, we, we've got a we've got a platform that's playing out. And, and these technologies are being used in this platform um, in, in, um, in um, uh, wars um, throughout the world. And, and so as a new technology is developed, a counter technology is being developed behind the scenes that can actually mitigate that technology. You spoke about geofencing. You know, geofencing is, is something that, that was done just to protect, in other words, provide a bubble over a commercial operation. Now we have to look at multiple areas that need to be protected and or that need to activate against um, the deployment of, of drones and the platforms that they might carry um, in, a, in a war zone. So the wars that are taking place, the conflictions or the, you know, the, the actions that are taking place throughout the world are actually um, a playground for, for industry to say and to monitor what is happening um, with reference to the deployment, with reference to the counter drone act technology and, and um, what can, how it can be further adapted moving forward. And of course, that, com- that sort of warfare technology will then translate into more commercial uses because that's where our conversation has been over the last year or so, far more than discussing how they're used in the in the battlefield. But we've been talking about drones or, you know, autonomous uh, drones as taxis. We've been talking about pizzas being delivered by uh, drones as well. Did you see a lot of that technology at the conference as well? Do you, does it feel like that's moving on a pace? Because we've been talking for it, about it for a long while, but, but I've only seen like one or two pizzas delivered, let's be honest. Yeah. Yeah. So, yes, oh, oh, for sure. That, that technology is still very prevalent and very much in the experimental stages. There are various entities and countries throughout the world that are deploying what they call last mile um, delivery services uh, with, with the 
with this technology. So that's something that's definitely uh, still in the fall. Um, I can't say that we're going to get the get the, the pizzas delivered for for the, the youngsters next birthday, but I'm sure that it's going to happen in the very, very near future. And it's not only about pizzas. It's got to do with, um, with parcel delivery. It's got to do with anything that can mitigate congestion. And uh, every day on the radio, we hear the new broadcast talking about the congestion, specifically here in Dubai. And if there's a technology that can come to the fore that can just alleviate a small percentage of that congestion, that is what is going to be used, whether it be um, to deliver your, your, your headphones through, um, through uh, a, a certain supplier and or um, a food. So that's definitely still on the cards. As long as they don't crash down on my head, I'm cool with that. Uh, as long as I, as long as they're controlled in everything they do. The other big, uh, I suppose, subject uh, or the big topic of conversation in any trade fair and any industry at the moment is sustainability. It, it, it really does always need to be front of mind now, and I think every single industry realizes that. Are drones, are autonomous vehicles, eco-friendly? Yes, they are. And obviously, we're still very much in the embryo, embryotic stage of this technology. So um, we've, we've heard uh, stories about uh, the battery uh, utilization and, and um, what, what happens to the batteries in, in the motor vehicles that apply a very similar technology as regards a power source is concerned. So we are still very much in the embryotic stage of, of, of this technology with reference to the battery application and the sustainability of the battery. In other words, what's going to happen to that, that you know, the, the actual battery, the hardware itself, once it's, uh, once it's gone beyond its, its, its sell-by date? But the sustainability, oh, for sure. Um, there's always new technologies that are looking to, to replace this, um, this hardcore um, energy power. And, and make it uh, and make it obviously more durable. Um, remember, the battery has a has a has a lifespan. So that lifespan is not only to do with the actual um, the actual uh, flyability of the of the vehicle, but it's also got to do with the endurance. So if we can come up with some sustainability um, option that can allow for further endurance and obviously increase the lifespan of the vehicle, that is only for the for the good of of the technology in the long run. And of course, many of them driven by, well, I think all of them pretty much driven by electricity. And as a consequence, that in itself is far more sustainable than, for example, a delivery motorbike uh, that's petrol powered. Um, Mike Rudolph, always a pleasure to have you join us on the studio. Thank you for being our Omex correspondent, unpaid. (laughs) It's been a great pleasure to have you join us on the radio as always. That is aviation and drone consultant Mike Rudolph giving us the lowdown on all the latest tech that's being uh, displayed at the Unmanned Systems Exhibition and Conference, which I always thought of as the drone show, but now it's just about every single autonomous vehicle under the sun. Hello there. Welcome back to The Agenda. Right. We're going to turn our attention now to what is frankly a brilliant story. And I know that um, I do quite serious topics on The Agenda. I try to do quite serious topics as a grown up journalist. But every now and then it's a Friday and we see a story and Jen and I just agree that it needs to be brought to the Dubai Airwaves. And it all comes down to a wildlife park in the United Kingdom that has a very unusual problem. Several very rude African grey parrots. Now, I'm going to play you a clip of some other parrots because obviously I can't play you the swearing parrots, but these are some other parrots teaching each other to have a conversation. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. 
There we go. Both of those voices are parrots. <laughs> yeah, those two parrots were having a very innocent conversation, teaching each other conversational flourishes such as tickle tickle and peekaboo. Well, unfortunately, that is not the case with the birds that were donated to Lincolnshire Wildlife Park in eastern England four years ago, because they are actually, or have been, kept away from the rest of the flock because they had a problem with swearing. Now, the hope was that keeping them away, the isolation, would improve their language. But actually, it didn't work. And now the Wildlife Park is changing its policy. Joining me now to talk through the new plan is Steve Nichols, who is Chief Executive of Lincolnshire Wildfire, Wildlife Park. He's got up at 6.30 in the morning to talk to us on the radio. Uh, Steve, thank you so much. How are you? Good morning. I'm fine. Thank you very much. No problem at all. Oh, it's so lovely to have you on the radio. Now, obviously, we can't say the words that the parrots say because we have to be very careful on the radio. But just how rude are they? Probably if you was walking through your bedroom at three o'clock in the morning to go to the loo and you stubbed your toe up on the bed, what comes out of your mouth comes out of these parrots' beaks on a regular occurrence. And how many of it? How many of them have the problem? Uh, we've got eight at the moment, uh, and these eight have. We had three more recent ones that arrived uh, about about two months ago. And so they've had to go through quarantine. And when they go through quarantine, they have a lot of human interaction. And that's when we actually start picking up on some of their bad habits. And uh, it, it became quite amusing because we said it looks like we've got another minor problem here. The only difference was that this particular three, they, they was very extreme. There wasn't, we have like, in the UK, there's like levels of swearing, which is the mild swearing, which even children sometimes get away with saying. And then you've got the next level of just adult swearing, which is what people say when whether they swear or they don't swear and then you've got the extreme stuff that you would only expect to be said when things are very angry or by a very pirate that's <laughs> pirate swearing <laughs> pirate swearing that's it that kind of stuff well these three we will say that they're pirates it's strange enough but one of them's called captain as well but uh yes uh very extreme that's the, that's the, the the politest i can say very extreme. We use the bunny ears to say it for inverted commas. Uh, right. And so why? Why? I mean, why? Is it because they've been taught them by naughty humans or do they just well, pick it's, up? It's a, very, it's a very common thing that African greys uh, are excellent at repeating uh, vocalisations. And so when people start taking their birds on, uh, they just naturally... It's just one of those things. People just do it for fun to start off with, not realising that uh, a parrot's like a tape recorder uh, in the olden days, that once it's on the tape, it will never come off again. And, uh, and then it can bring it up in the most op- inopportune moment. And what's really high, uh, like amusing for us is they actually learn it in the voice of the person that spoke to them. So you can't get away with it. You can't blame someone else. Like someone tried to win these three. One of the ladies actually brought it to me and she said that, uh, it, I, I do have to apologise, it has got some quite... Uh, bad language and I said well that's okay don't worry we're, we're, it doesn't bother us and she said well the problem is is my son and my husband are constantly trying to get him to swear while we were doing all the paperwork the parrot actually told me something that told me to do something quite nasty but it was in her voice <laughs> which means it was her that had actually taught it not the actual husband and she was so embarrassed but it, it was actually quite light-hearted it was quite fun but that's what people do they, they teach them and don't realize that they'll never forget it do the parrots know they're being naughty 
I don't think they know they're being naughty, okay. but they know that they're triggering a positive response. So no matter who you are, and, and I'll, I'll say this to anyone, if you walk past a parrot and it swears at you or calls you anything, it's almost impossible not to laugh. And if you laugh, then you're triggering a positive response. And, and what makes it worse is because they're very quick at picking things up, then they actually picked up people laughing as well as people swearing. So you'd get one swear, someone laugh, and then the parrot would then trigger itself to actually do it again. So it sounded like a, a little old working men's club, uh, literally where the, the, the language was, was unbelievable. So they talk to each other rudely. And the thing is, is that you need to rehabilitate these, these parrots because you, really, you can't really have them on display for children to see. And, and so how are you planning to, to try to bring them back into the sort of more polite fold? <laughs> well, the, the general idea is uh, they've moved into a colony of 92 other African greys. Uh, and we will class these as 92 normal African greys. And, and normal, uh, if you class that as birds that make microwave noises and door squeaks noises and mobile phones. So when you walk past that particular aviary, it sounds like a normal house, to tell you the truth. There's so many noises and things, familiar noises. So the general plan, and, and it could go quite bad, but the general plan is that the eight birds will listen to all the common noises coming from a, a quite a large number of parrots. And hopefully they'll reprogram because they'll not learn other people's voices because they've already taught the voices. Uh, but what they will do is they will learn mechanical noises quite easily. And we're just hoping that it dilutes it a little at least. It could go the other way, though, Steve. <laughs> it <laughs> Couldn't could, it? Yeah. You I could think have... we'll be back on here again if it does. You could have 90 birds with pirate language, literally pirate yes, levels. Be, but it'll be, it's, uh, we'll just have to turn into an adult sanctuary. Yeah, <laughs> X-rated. Today you're coming to the, the, the X-rated Lincolnshire Wildfire Park. Um, brilliant. Uh, the mind boggles. Steve, you've been a wonderful guest. Thank you so much for joining us on the radio over here in Dubai. We really, really appreciate your time. And thank you no for problem. getting up at goodness knows what o'clock uh, to chat to us. That's Steve Nichols there. He is the chief executive of Lincolnshire Wildlife Park. If you find yourself in eastern England, you definitely need to go in the hunt of the sweary parrots. Uh, two of them called Eric. One was called Captain. We'll have, you have to go there to find out the names of the others. Hello there. Welcome back to the agenda. Right. This is such a fascinating story. I'm going to start with asking you a question, as I always do. Uh, Do you recognise this recipe? My preference is cubed up chicken thighs, spoonful of yogurt, fresh ginger and garlic paste, hefty pinch of salt. We got garam masala, turmeric and chilli powder. Now mix and marinate until you lose patience. Wow, that was brilliant. Um, Do you know what it is? Did you sense any, recognize any ingredients? It's basically the recipe for butter chicken. And right now it is at the very center of a massive row between two Indian restaurants who are both claiming that they first invented the recipe, or at least that their ancestors did. Um, So you've got the family behind Moti Mahal, which is a very famous deli restaurant. They're suing their rival chain, Dariyai. 
Gange, am I saying that right? Daria Gange, accusing it of falsely claiming to have invented the dish, as well as another one, Dal Makana. Now, the dispute has India, the whole of India, literally sitting on the edge of their seat. TV broadcasters are running segments on the history of the dish. There's debate raging on social media. And uh, that was enough for us to want to talk about it on the radio, basically. And joining me now is lawyer Amit Data, who's an expert in intellectual property with the firm. Um, Sir Krishna and Associates. Amit, really good of you to join us on the line. Good morning to you. Tell me, do either of these restaurants have a leg to stand on? Is there a case to answer here? Thanks for having me on, Georgia. Uh, Yes, certainly uh, there is an interesting fight apart from the fact that the dish is top line. Uh, But uh, the claim goes back maybe 60, 70 years in terms of who invented it, uh, the dish in question or dishes in question. Um, the curious thing is that both the parties uh, have forefathers or grandfathers, rather, who were partners at one point of time. So that's what makes the fight personal, uh, but it makes it very professional as well because both are large franchising businesses uh, and have a lot to gain or lose uh, by losing uh, the ability to say that, you know, either of them invented both the dishes. You can imagine some enterprising director or producer turning this into a film because it does have all the ingredients uh, for a fantastic sort of soap opera type uh, movie. How, um, from a legal point of view, how would you prove ownership of this recipe? Will you need sort of documents to, to show that, you know, that it was your restaurant, your father, your grandfather that came up with the recipe? Yeah, yes. Documents and oral testimony as well. Some level of deposition by people who were around at increasingly, you know, uh, longer periods of time. Uh, that's obvi- obviously going to be a very big challenge uh, because if it's 60 or 70 or 80 years, depending on some claims, say 1930, some claims, say 1950, uh, apart from the contradiction there in terms of who invented what when, uh, I think they will need to have some level of documentation, some level of third party uh, uh, oral depositions, oral testimony, which shows which, which can place uh, them in proximity with the recipe or the dish at a prior point of time. So it's not about uh, who invented it is going to be uh, kind of proven by who was there first. So as far as when the judge makes the ruling, because this is going to, it does look like it's actually going to go to court, doesn't look like they're going to settle. It's far too bitter. The dispute is far too bitter. Do you think that the judge will ultimately come down on one side, will will choose in favour of one of these restaurant chains? Uh, it's already in court, and I think, yes, the judge is certainly, he's been called upon, he's been invited to kind of uh, give a ruling, and he's uh, likely to come down on one side. As to which side prevails, I think Motimal does have a slightly better case in terms of the fact that uh, they have some level of evidence, a third-party uh, uh, statements and awards, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, in the public domain, which they can use to rely on. Uh, what complicates the matter for them is uh, the grandfather of the current uh, CEO MD of uh, the defendant, Darya Ganj, uh, was a partner with the grandfather of the current plaintiffs. So that queers the pitch, and both were partners at the time. The recipe was 
allegedly invented or conceived of. So that's going to be a problem. Uh, you know, my money, I wouldn't put my money on anybody right now because the evidence is not clear. Uh, but I would say that the scales are slightly tilting towards Moti Mahal. Whoever did indeed create this recipe, they were a, a, a master. It's a masterpiece. I mean, it's, a, it's everyone's favourite dish, right? Oh, absolutely. It's a signature flagship dish, uh, which signifies Moti Mahal with a massive franchising sort of push, not only in India, across India, but across the world as well, which is why it's even more important. It's a flagship dish, as I said. But Darya Ganj is equally important because they're also in the franchise game. The franchise market in India is close to $45 billion now, growing at a rapid clip. So, you know, you need these sort of signature flagship dishes to kind of, you know, make you stand out from the rest of the crowd. Can I ask you a personal question? Have you tried both? Do you have a preference? Uh, Both are my preference, as I've learned to my detriment earlier. Uh, And... uh, I've since started going easy on them, but butter chicken is an absolutely delightful dish, as we all know. Oh, we all know. Indeed, my goodness me, it's easily my favourite. Um, Amit Data, thank you so much for joining us on the line. An absolute pleasure to talk to you. Amit Data is an expert in intellectual property with Sakrishna and Associates, based, of course, in India, talking there about that that butter chicken court case that is uh, literally keeping everyone in India on the edge of their seat as to who's going to actually win. I love the fact that there's this whole sort of personal history going on in the background. It sort of feels like a, yeah, I mean, I think it could definitely be a movie. You can definitely imagine it being turned into a movie. Hello there. Welcome back to The Agenda. And uh, we're going to take a look at a really interesting study that's just been published that's found that not going to school is as bad for your health as smoking and drinking. So as an adult now, if you didn't go to school for very long, that could have as much of an impact on your health going forward as what you're putting into your body now. It's quite, it's quite full on. Um, and it is the largest survey ever of its kind. And what happened is that researchers found that people who reach high levels of education live longer than those who don't. And it's by quite a margin. In fact, if you are a person that's finished secondary school, you cut your risk of early death by nearly 25%. Whereas if you do the full 18 years of education, then you've lowered your risk of early death by nearly a third just over a third, in fact. So if you put it in really simple terms, experts believe that a better education it leads in turn to greater job prospects, higher income, and as a consequence of that, it also means better access to healthcare. But the link is so stark that they say not going to school at all is as bad for long-term health as smoking 10 cigarettes or drinking five alcoholic drinks every day for a decade. It takes a minute for that to sink in, doesn't it? But I have got some good news for you before before everyone in their cars just feels depressed this Friday. That that can be reversed. So the link can be reversed. And to find out how it can be reversed, a little earlier, I spoke to the report author, sociologist Dr. Mirza Balaj, and she basically talked me through their findings. We started approximately three years ago collaborating on this specific piece with Institute of Health Metrics Evaluation, which is based in Seattle, 
the University of Washington, and they are responsible for the largest global study, which is the Global Burden of Disease Study, published every two years. And in that study, they actually look at different factors that might explain the burden of disease across countries. But those factors are very biomedical. And so our team teamed up with them to include the first socioeconomic factor that might explain the patterns of mortality we see across countries. So out of this collaboration, we published two papers, one looking at child mortality. And this time around, over the last three years, it took us to work and to publish this article on the effect of own education on adults' mortality. So all this effort basically is, is done to be able to monitor the effect of education periodically, every two years. And your findings are really quite extraordinary. It turns out that education is more important than even a healthy lifestyle when it comes to your health? Usually when people stay longer in formal education, they tend to improve also their behaviors. So what we do say is like the level of education improves also your diet, improves your social connections, improves your security in life and your economic standing and your working conditions. So that is all encapsulated in what education means and what more years of education brings to the quality of life of people. Can this be seen even in secondary education, for example, or does it have to be tertiary? So I think one of the most important findings of this study, and which is a strong policy message for us, is that every year of additional education counts. So even from one year of education to zero, it still matters. It matters to begin with by only 3%, but you add up every year and then you achieve a difference of 13% if people just finish primary education or 25% difference if people finish high school and so on. So, But every year it's incrementally adding to the protection of one's life. So does it matter when you start your education? What we observe is actually the effects in terms of mortality are stronger for younger ages. So between 18 to 49, we see that is three times higher the effect of education in terms of mortality compared to older ages. Education matters at every age. People with higher education are more protected. But it means that especially in this younger age group, people with lower education are much more vulnerable to premature mortality. And can you go back to it later in life? So this particular study looks only at formal education. So the years that people engage in formal education, basically the three main levels up to master degree. But we did other studies in our center, which is exclusively focusing on health inequalities. And we know that adults... For instance, this is a study from Sweden that we did where they have invested for generations now in adult learning that people who change their level of education, even after 40 years of age, they actually, particularly for men, they reduce their risk of premature mortality. That's amazing. That means the message coming out of these studies is that it's never too late to start learning to increase your educational standards. Indeed, it's never too late. And actually, it shows that lifelong learning not only improves their position in the job market or their self-esteem or their engagement in society, but ultimately, it reduces premature mortality compared to people who didn't attend adult learning later on. So we should never stop investing in education across the life course. That is, uh, I think, some of the strongest messages that are coming from the research of chain in the latest years. 
So what should we expect to see in countries like the Emirates, according to what you see as far as our school attendance? The Emirates actually is doing really well when it comes to attendance on primary education. It's really in one of the best countries with the lowest percentage of children not attending primary education. It's 0.2% to be exact. So how do you hope governments will respond to this type of research? What are you potentially looking for from governments around the world? This research actually can help put more emphasis on the fourth goal of UN, so achieving access to high-quality education to all boys and girls, both in primary and especially in secondary education. So basically it shows that you have also health benefits if you invest on education. And it shows that you need basically to emphasize it. And the effect is not only for high-income countries, but for every world region. So that's one of the messages coming out of this research is that the effect we find is universal. Independently, if a region is high income, middle, low income or low income, education matters to protect one's life in every of these regions, which means that every country can benefit from investing more in it. So off the back of this research, what would you like? What would you expect to happen next? So we have already taken the next steps because all these studies are for overall mortality without distinguishing what is the reason of mortality, what is the cause of mortality. So what we are doing next is actually to see what are the inequalities among the leading causes of mortality. So what are the inequalities specifically for these major causes of death and to see later on what kind of interventions can actually reduce those inequalities. That's Dr. Mirza Balaj, a report co-author and sociologist. Fantastic to get her on the radio today. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley on Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there. Welcome back to The Agenda. Right. Lovely to have you all with us. And we're going to take a look at something that I think... I think most parents sort of semi would consider if it was a possible option, but maybe they didn't know it was an option. And it is all refers back to that hot topic that everyone is discussing right now. And that is the terrible traffic that we're all experiencing in rush hour. In fact, I imagine many of you are stuck in it right now because it's the Friday school run when every single pupil in Dubai basically finishes the school day at the same time. I am mercifully spared the school run on Fridays because obviously I'm here on the radio, but I know my husband finds it an absolute nightmare. And while the authorities are obviously working on all sorts of possible solutions, some parents are taking matters into their own hands and they're choosing to send their children to boarding school. Now, I went to boarding school myself, oddly enough. I had no idea that it was even an option here in the UAE. So I'm really looking forward to chatting to our next guest uh, because I'm joined in the studio by Ruth Burke, who is the principal of Swiss International Scientific School in Dubai. They are, oh my goodness, Ruth is, the person I thought was Ruth is shaking her head at me. Hello, who have I got instead? Hello, everybody. Um, My name's Alison Roberts. I'm actually head of marketing and admissions at Swiss. Ah, well, thank (laughs) you very much for joining us, Alison. Now, I know I've got the next person right because I've also got Lily Stahl, who is a weekly boarder in grade nine at the school as well. So thank you so much for joining me. Lovely to have you with us. 
you. Hello, lovely to have you here. And I'd love to get uh, your reaction to this uh, conversation as well. So please do get in touch, 4001, or you can WhatsApp me on 04871 Is weekly boarding something that you would consider? Um, not just because it meant that you would avoid the school run for 90% of the time, uh, but also because maybe it is a good option for your child. Now, I know that opinions differ when it comes to boarding, so we're going to get into the details of that now. Um, so, yes, tell me, Alison, um, how long has the school been offering weekly boarding? Um, so the Swiss school has been offering boarding for five years. Um, we actually have three variations of boarding. We have the full boarding, which is what most people would imagine, the seven days a week. Um, we also offer weekly boarding, um, five days a week. And then we have something called flexi boarding, which is becoming really popular in Dubai. And that's essentially for parents who are traveling for work um, and they can drop their child into the boarding house for a week or two. Um, obviously for work reasons, um, and that's become increasingly popular. But obviously weekly boarding is, is, as you said, a hot topic right now because of the situation regarding commuting to school and back. Yeah, I mean, it really is. Uh, And I'm intrigued to know how many people, how many parents are opting for it because potentially of the traffic. Yeah, so we at the moment we have 100 boarders in our boarding school, um, of which about 20% of them are weekly boarders, and that has increased dramatically this year. Um, and the reason for weekly boarding is various, but obviously the commuting is one of them. Um, the academic support that the children get Monday to Friday is another, and access to all of the sporting facilities makes it really easy for these children to do all of their extracurricular activities on site. Um, Also a parent dream. It really is, considering I spend two hours a day at least in the car driving them backwards and forwards. It sounds like a complete, yeah, sounds like the complete solution in many ways, doesn't it? I mean, does it cost a lot more? So the cost is, um, obviously, we have three variations of cost. Um, it costs uh, about 2,500 dirham a week um, for a boarder to stay in the boarding house, which obviously, when you think about that in terms of what they're offered, accommodation, food, teacher support, sporting activities, um, and lack of transportation required, actually seems very good value for money. I mean, yes, I have to say, I imagine there's quite a lot of parents currently sitting in the school run where they're like, would I pay two and a half thousand to avoid this? <laughs> yes, I would. Um, bring it on. Now, Lily, um, well, I'm so thrilled for you to come into the studio because obviously one of the things that I think parents really worry about when they're even considering boarding is whether or not, you know, their kids will like it. You know, whether you'll feel like, frankly, you've been thrown out of the family home. Um, So tell me, um, what led you to start boarding? Tell me your story. My mom really had, like, my mom was researching new schools and she heard a lot of good things about Swiss. And she realized that it offered weekly boarding. And me and my little brother, he's also a weekly boarder. We go to a lot of summer camps and like doing those type of things. So she said, why don't you try? And if you don't like it, you can always change your mind. And did you... Um, what type of boarding do you do? Are you just weekly or do you spend loads of time at the school? I was weekly just up until winter, like the winter break, and now I'm a full boarder. But because I'm a full boarder I, and my parents do live here, I can file for pass any, like, any day of the weekend and go see them or go home. 
That's so interesting that you chose to stay in school at the weekends because my memory of boarding school, and I started boarding at the age of 10, was that the weekends were really boring. There was nothing going on. Is that not the case? No, not in Swiss. They have trips offered every Saturday. Um, some are compulsory, but most of the time it's not. Like the one this weekend, it's wellness, be- like well-being activities on campus. That's not compulsory, but it offers, you can use the sports facilities. We have a very nice gym and outside track, paddle courts, etc. And how old's your brother? He's in sixth grade. He's 11. Okay, so he's the same age as my yeah. uh, my eldest. That's really interesting because obviously he's a little bit younger. I'm sort of considering boarding school for my my children, but but when they become teenagers, when they become your age, basically, do you not miss home? And I ask you this both as a mother and as a radio presenter. I do miss it, but like when you're in boarding, you don't really have time to miss it. There's always something to do, and if you really feel homesick, there's any like you can talk to anyone on the boarding team, or you're always free to call your parents whenever. I suppose uh, mobile phones had only, this is going to make me, this is aging me, but mobile phones had only just been invented when I was at boarding school. <laughs> and so it was quite difficult to get hold of your parents. You kind of had to go through the, the housemaster or housemistress. But what is it like when you're there? Do you have your own room? Do you have your own privacy? You know, what about if you feel sad because you're not getting on with your friends and you're like your mom's not there? As of right now, grades six to nine have roommates so it's them and one other person so I have one other roommate with me and 10 11 and 12 graders have their own rooms um if you're ever feeling sad or feeling homesick or anything there's anyone on the boarding team that you can go to we have um a counselor or any staff anyone's free to help you what about food this is going to sound weird okay but I have a weird thing about food because I was hungry at boarding school quite a lot. And my parents didn't give me sort of pocket money to buy tuck, to buy chocolate bars and stuff. So if I was hungry, I was just hungry, basically. (laughs) Um, Is there lots of food? We have breakfast, lunch and dinner offered by the boarding schools. And because we are boarding students, the school lunch, we are offered more options with an app called Spare. Uh, Sandwiches, salads, anything that we're offered that isn't the day students aren't. And... The boarding team did really good and they took advice from the students on what they wanted for meals or anything. So that's why the dinner and the breakfast are really good. And we also have a pantry on every floor of the boarding house, which is always like fully stocked. And if you're hungry anytime, then you can go there. And just make yourself toast or something like that. anything. Actually, I remember at senior school, there was toast once you were over 16. So I wasn't hungry then. (laughs) But genuinely, beforehand, I really was. So do you know why your parents made the decision to consider weekly boarding? Is it because um, they live very busy lives themselves? Do they travel a lot? You know, how come they came up with the idea? My parents do travel for work quite a lot. But whenever they do, they always find a way for us to have someone with us. But it's a lot easier for them now to travel and do things because we are in boarding and they know that we're very well taken care of. It's, I mean, it is such an interesting subject. And, and Lily, I really appreciate you being like, you're telling us exactly what it's like, telling us exactly how it is. Alison, I'm really intrigued by this topic, partly personally, but partly because there is a sort of slight... I think there is, Lily. I think there still is a slight stigma around it. I think people, and I slightly feel it myself, even though I went to boarding school and I'm considering it for my children, there is a slight, 
you know, you, you know, people who are critical of it say, what's the point of having children if you're going to send them away? Like, we all know that that's what, yeah. what people say. Um, as far as your experience of the parents at Swiss International Scientific School, what, what's the reasoning for them choosing boarding, do you think? Um. Every parent I speak to has a different reason for choosing boarding. But I think what's different about boarding in the UAE is the mentality is very different from the traditional boarding schools you might find in the UK and Europe. Boarding, like you say, has does have a, a, a stigma attached to it. Um, but what's interesting about us is we're doing boarding differently. We're doing it in a modern way. Um, it's not uh, lots and lots of rules and regulations. We're trying to listen to the students in terms of what they want. They have teachers who live in the boarding house helping them with homework every night. They have huge amounts of sports activities, which ultimately, ultimately mean for people like Lily and her brother who do go home at the weekend, the homework is done, the sporting and the extracurricular activities are done, the social life is done, and therefore the family time at the weekend is actually really quality family time. And that's the feedback we've had from parents, is we really enjoy the children at the weekend because we're not doing all of the stuff that comes with school life and extracurricular life. Um, you know, everything is ticked for them, essentially. So yeah. it's a different mentality, but it's a modern take on boarding. I have to admit, I don't think the time I spend in the car on the school run or taking them to football or rugby or whatever it is, is quality time. It's mostly me ranting at whatever person's just cut me up on the roads. We've had one message already come through from MN that says, what about access to mobile phones and other such devices? Is it regulated? We will get to the answer of that question in just a few minutes. Delighted to say that we've got Lily in the studio. She is a weekly boarder at Swiss Scientific School in Dubai, Swiss International Scientific School. We've also got Alison Roberts, who's head of admissions. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Hey there, welcome back to the programme. Right, we're in the middle of the conversation about boarding schools. And the reason why we're having that conversation is because the Swiss International Scientific School in Dubai has seen a real uptick in students choosing to board at their school, something that I didn't even know was possible here in Dubai. And the theory is that that could be because of the dreadful traffic that we're seeing at the moment. Because, of course, if you're a weekly boarder, for example, then, you know, your parents skip 90% of those school runs. And I have to say, the more I think about it, the more appealing it sounds. Uh, I'm joined in the studio by Alison Roberts, who's head of admissions at Swiss International Scientific School and also Lily Stahl who is in grade nine and a weekly boarder and lots of questions are coming in for my guests so thank you both of you for for staying with me. Um, Lily I'm going to start with you there's a question here that's come through from LM that, that says what about access to mobile phones and other such devices like PlayStation 5s is it regulated? Um, they collect our mobile phones for everyone for meal times, sports time, and the school day. Um, and for grades six to eight, they're supposed to hand in their devices, like their computers, their iPads, phones, at nine before they go to bed, and then they can collect them in the morning. Um, and any there's a common room in both houses where anyone can go. There's a PlayStation 5 in both, TVs. They also have a pool table, ping pong table, and 
yeah, other. And so once you become an older teenager, you are ex- expected to basically self-monitor your use of your phone and stuff. Yeah, um, me, me and my roommate, we both have our phones. We put them down when we're supposed to go to sleep. We don't. We're not addicted to them. That's good. What time yeah. is bedtime for you guys? Is there lights out? Uh, lights out are 9 for grade 6 to 9 and 9.30 for 10 to 12. On the weekend, it's 10. Okay. Oh, that's, that gives me a sense that maybe I should be letting my year six stay up a little bit later. His lights out are still eight. <laughs> but then maybe that's the difference. You send them to boarding school. Um, how about um, the sort of, I know that you're a full-time boarder now. You've, you were weekly. You've transferred to being a full-time. Are there must-go-home times during the year? Like, are there certain weekends where everyone leaves the school? Any school holiday, students are obligated to go home as the boarding houses close and the boarding staff also have their holidays. But other than that, it's sort of quite easy going. That's very interesting, Alison, because I know that some schools have sort of set exiats to ensure that, you know, you don't get one or two sort of solitary boarders wandering around at the weekend all on their own. A question that's just come in for you from, oh, actually, no name on this one. What is the cost of boarding school? We mentioned it a little earlier. Let's get into it. So how, at, at the lowest grade, for example, how much is weekly boarding? Yeah, so we uh, the lowest grade to come into boarding is grade six, which is age 11. Um, and the price for a weekly boarder starts about 160,000 dirham, which is all inclusive. So that includes the tuition, the accommodation, uniform, food, um, after school activities. So really the only extra is any spending money that the parents choose to give the child. And full boarding goes uh, starts at 190,000. Um, that includes seven days a week for the whole year, um, includes all tuition, all accommodation, food, visa, Um, uniform, everything. So we price everything so that it's inclusive and parents don't get any nasty surprises or any termly bills. That also includes all of the weekend trips. Are you getting quite a lot of international students now? So people from far afield sending their children here? Yeah, we are actually. We've got 35 nationalities of students in the boarding house um, and they are genuinely coming from all over. So we've got children from Venezuela, we've got um, expats from Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Germany, France. Um, Next week we have children joining from China, Sweden, Jordan, genuinely, it's a melting pot. That is two, amazing. And two children from the UK um, who want to do something different, which is refreshing. That is very refreshing indeed, because uh, most British people are doing the opposite, sending yeah, them back. exactly. Guys, it's been absolutely wonderful having this conversation. Really, really interesting stuff. So thank you so much for joining us in the studio. Thank uh, you. You've just been listening to Alison Roberts. She's head of, head of admissions at Swiss International Scientific School. And also to Lily Stahl, who is in grade nine. Thank you both for your time. It's been amazing. Thank you very thank much. You. Have a good day. Yes, welcome back to the agenda. Right, let's take a look at all the sports news. Today, the very fabulous Robbie Greenfield has sent over our report. Uh, He has been keeping abreast of all the live action this morning. Take it away, Robbie. Morning, Georgia. Plenty of live sport to bring you up to speed on. And what an absorbing tussle we're witnessing in the first semi-final of the Australian Open between world number one Novak Djokovic and the young pretender Yannick Sinner. A lot of people thought that Sinner would be able to pose all 
all sorts of problems for Novak. He's actually beaten him two out of the last three times they've met in best of three set matches, although crucially not in the one that counted in the ATP finals at the end of last year. But what a start the Italian made. He won the first set 6-1, Djokovic all over the place, making all sorts of uncharacteristic errors. And then he backed it up. Sinner won the second set 6-2, and we thought we were going to witness something absolutely monumental. Well, Novak Djokovic has not won 24 Grand Slams by accident. He has dug his heels in. He has found something. He's gone to the well and he's managed to win the third set on a tie break, 8-6. It's two sets to one to the advantage of Yannick Sinner. The big question is, can the young Italian close things out from here? We've seen Novak come from two sets down before are we going to witness another miracle? Looking forward to uh, seeing that one play out. Elsewhere in the cricket, England are struggling against India. They've taken two wickets this morning, but India are progressing nicely and building or at least threatening to build a sizable first innings lead. England, yesterday, they were all out for 246. Well, India have started well. Yashad suggests well. Well, he made 80. Uh, Rohit Sharma, the captain, had a 24. Shubban Gill made 23, but it's the partnership of Kale Raul and Shreyas Iyer, who are really getting stuck in in the middle order here. 55 to Raul, not out. And Shreyas Iyer already on 34, not out. As India edge towards England's first innings total with just three wickets lost so far. They're at 222 for three. Finally, it is, of course, the second day of the RAC Championship, the Russell Kamer Championship. We're going to be broadcasting there all of Sunday afternoon, 2 until 5 p.m. through into a conclusion of that event. And currently your leader is the South African, Brandon Stone. He's at 11 under par, three under for the day. The day's biggest mover so far is the Belgian, Nicholas Colsart. He's got to 10 under par, a veteran of the DP World Tour. He's eight under for his round. The overnight leader, incidentally, Callum Shinkwin, is level par through 11 holes of his round but he shot 10 under yesterday for a 62. He's at 10 under, as is another South African, Xander Lombard, and the Englishman, Richard Mansell. That brings you up to speed with all the live sport. We've got plenty more to come. It's the second Australian men's open semi-final between Daniel Medvedev and Alex Verev up next. Lovely stuff. Thank you very much indeed, Robbie Greenfield. Of course, uh, plenty from Robbie over the weekend, plenty from all the sports team. Uh, but you can also catch up with Robbie and Chris and Sonal with your drive time show this afternoon from 5pm. The agenda is live Monday to Friday from 10am till 1pm.